Welcome to another episode of the Transfix Take podcast, where we are performance driven. I want to say it's a triumphant return for our guest, Lauren Began, who's a maritime expert and founder of Squall Strategies, her maritime consulting and legal solutions company. But this is technically the first time that our audience is meeting you on the podcast today. Reason being technological issues. I take full accountability. But in the meantime, welcome, Lauren. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much. You know, isn't it always something? We've been doing this virtual world for how many years now? And there's always like a mute button or whatever. So happy to be back. Happy to be here with your audience for the first time. Really excited for our conversation today. Absolutely. We've got a lot of setting the stage to do, and I want to get right into it. So Ocean Freight has been top of mind for Maze and I on the podcast here at Transfix, and we've been talking a lot about potential impacts of the port closures and lockdowns and backups for, I think, weeks now. But I want to set the stage, right? For shippers and carriers who may never touch drayage or ocean freight, can you give us a process uh, or the process by which freight makes the move from overseas to inland in the U.S.? Sure. I mean, so so here's the stat. 90% of everything moves by ocean cargo. So there's a book out there that's called 90% of everything. Um, globally, 84, I think, percent of everything moves by ocean freight, but the oh, wow. U.S., it's 90%. And actually, I've heard even, even recently that it might be above 90%. Arguably, 100% of everything moves by truck, <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, um, but 90% of everything moves by ocean at some point. And whether that's a component that gets built to something else or whether that's, you know, something that you didn't even realize was something that was an import. Um, so 90% of everything. So, you know, it that means that that's an import. That means that that's something that's not just coming from China, but, you know, arguably a large portion does. And that's why we've seen the backups in L.A. Long Beach. Um, but, you know, so so these imports are coming in, they're going by ocean transit, and then they they come to the port, they get offloaded. Um, you know, there's all sorts of different processing things that happen there. Well, I don't know if we're going to talk about detention and demerge, but that usually happens once that um, gets offloaded off that ship. And then, you know, then it goes to drayage, and then it goes over to either rail or warehouse, and you start to break down what was just the box previously. And so... <clears throat> talking about the box. So, you know, when we start to kind of dive into some of these, the box itself is a fairly new creation. It's only been around for what, 60 or so, 70 years at this point. Um, so that's something that was novel. So at the time, previous to the box, um, it was, and we're talking about the container box, you know, that, that now we kind of know everybody understands, you know, you've seen the 60 minutes episode, you've seen that box, um, but they come in kind of generally two sizes. We typically talk about vessels being TEUs, that's how big the vessel is, is measured in how many TEUs it can hold, which is a 20 equivalent unit, which is a 20 foot box, which now, if you kind of conceptualize what that box looks like, the ones that are over the road are 53 foot. So for the most part, those are 53 foot that are behind a truck that are mostly over the road. Um, the ones that are ocean, you have the 20 foot and then you have 40 foot FEUs, 40 foot equivalent units. Most of them that we see that are on those chassis are going to be the 40 foot. But because right. when we started measuring vessels by TEUs, most of the measurements are in those TEUs of the 20 foot equivalent unit. That kind of helps, I feel like, set the stage for surface yeah. and ocean transport to understand each other from that baseline definition. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So I want to, you mentioned detention and I want to get into that because that 
I'm immediately thinking of detention that truck drivers go through when they're waiting at facilities and warehouses. Is that a similar concept when it comes to ocean freight? So kind of. Um, so it's kind of all about spurring action. It's all about kind of catalyzing movement. Um, okay. And so what happens on the ocean side, so demurrage and detention, um, demurrage is kind of a, a, an easier one to explain that basically the, the box comes off the ship and goes onto the yard mm-hmm. um, and then it sits there. And so you have maybe five to seven days of free time where you're allowed to kind of keep your goods on the yard. But this isn't a warehouse. This is a transit zone. And so the, the terminal or the port can then say, look, after five or seven days, whatever the free time allowance is, we're going to start charging. It's just going to be a little bit, but I just want to remind you, move your stuff. And yeah. so then you get charged demurrage. And so that might be $50, $75 a day that's just saying, don't forget, you know, we, we want you to move your stuff. We're going to charge you a little bit. We're going to ding you. And then you'll maybe have five more days of that hundred or less dollars a day. That's the demurrage charge, basically saying, don't forget, you got to move your stuff. It's ready to go. Yep. And then at that point, you're now, what, one week of free time, one week of the reduced demurrage. You might pop up to 250 bucks a day because they're saying, guys, this is not a warehouse zone. You can't keep your stuff here. You got to move it. And usually that kind of spurs the action. That gets the attention. And so that's demurrage. That's a demurrage charge. It's an incremental increase of this is kind of rent for your stuff being on our yard. Yeah, It's meant to kind of cover two things. The the Federal Maritime Commission is the independent regulatory agency that really regulates this world. And they've said that we want this charge to be catalyzing. We want this to be incentivizing the movement of the goods. They've also said, we op- we understand that this needs to cover your operations as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they've said like, as they're looking through all of their case law or, or cases on this and complaints as they come in, those are the two things that they're mostly looking at. And so detention is essentially that same principle, but for the box itself. So sometimes people are kind of renting the box that the, all their goods are moving in. And same thing, we don't want you just holding up this box. This is supposed to be, you know, for other things too. You should be breaking down this box and putting it into your warehouse. We don't want you storing all your stuff in the box. You know, this is this is supposed to be going back overseas to go fill up again. Or, you know, we want to fill it up with our goods, our, our agriculture goods, our ag goods, and send it out. This is going to be a valuable export. And so it's that equipment. Um, yeah, so. That's so interesting. You know, there's a lot of comparisons, comparisons, I think, when it comes to inland versus ocean, right? Or or inland and ocean, because there's, there's it's not a versus type of situation. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, last I remember we spoke, we talked about the lack of technological advancements in ocean freight, which re- was surprising for me, but also not surprising. So I wonder if we can talk a little bit about what are the top, um, I guess, lack of advancements that the trucking industry has moved forward in, but ocean really has not. Sure. Well, you know, one of the biggest things, um, and I think I think the over the road, I think the surface transport feels this as well, is the is the lack of transparency, the lack of availability of the information on, like, is the cargo, you know, drayage drivers, is that box ready to be picked up? I don't know. You know, like sometimes you might not even know if the ship has arrived yet. I mean, you know, short of looking out your window and saying, "Oh, I see it. There it is. I'm going to go pick up my box." You know, like, and it's not going to be available as soon as it gets offloaded either. Yeah. So the visibility into the status of, you know, I mean, the truck drivers have the same issue. You show up and it might not be ready yet. You know, you you show up at the port. You can't just linger at the port. You know, this is, like I said, this is a transit zone. This is supposed to be in and out. Don't linger. Don't hang out. You know, we, 
we need to know when it's ready and cleared so that you can pull in, grab the box and go. I mean, it many ports have hours wait. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's an anomaly up in up sure. in New England here where I am. Port of Boston has a 30 minute double turn time. So you can pull up, grab your stuff or drop your stuff, grab another box and leave. And you're in and out of the gate in 30 minutes. That is as we say locally, wicked fast. <laughs> um, but you know, you also have like some ports that it's hours of waiting. And so, you know, having a tool that can solve that. And so here's where I think all of these billions of dollars of profits that the ocean carriers are getting, I hope it gets reinvested into some of that visibility. And you know, there's mm. business secrets that people want to protect. You know, there's, there's kind of secret sauces that people want to protect, but that doesn't mean that you can't, anonymize the goods, but still have some sort of identifier so that then you can say, okay, well, box XYZ, I don't care what's in it. I just need to know, is box XYZ available to pick up? Has it cleared all of its charges? Has it cleared all of its, you know, invoicing? Is it, is it available for me to now go pick up and take to a warehouse? Right. And I think, you know, that that's something that everybody can get behind is the visibility of the availability of their status. Yeah, definitely. Those issues definitely exist on the trucking side of the business as well. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, Maze, we would, our lives would be so different if we had a 30 minute get in, get out on the trucking side of things. Um, so much more efficient. It'd be, <laughs> and it is the dream state, though. But Maybe isn't that crazy? Weeks. I mean, that, that then becomes a promotional piece for that port. You know, now they can say, you know, it's it's a it's a medium to large size port, so it's certainly not the largest out there. So sure. it's limited in in kind of the the availability of some of the routes of of some of the ocean carriers um, because it can't service the largest largest. Really, truly, Long Beach and LA are really the only ones that can service some of the largest vessels. Um, however, it's such an efficient port that like it's worth looking at. It's worth checking out. Like, is there something that you could use? to bring into the port of Boston because that is so fast. It's yeah, it's, it's a big yeah. selling point and, and shippers are big on that too. They want to be shippers of choice for carriers. And mm -hmm. one of the big things for carriers is definitely that that weight, that detention time and how quickly can they turn on out of there? Exactly. Oh my goodness. That Sorry, that blew my mind a little bit. Um, right? <laughs> now that we've kind of set the stage, I July 1st is coming up and this is a huge date for not only ocean freight, but also I think it's going to really impact the uh, the inland freight sector. I'd love it if you could give us some highlights on what July 1st means to the supply chain industry and why we should all be looking, looking into what this is. So what's going on? So it's the labor workforce. So it's the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the ILWU, which is essentially the West Coast Maritime Labor Workforce. Yep. The East Coast has the ILA. Um, so the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU, is negotiating with the Pacific Maritime Association. And so what that is, is essentially the labor workforce with the terminals and, and the um, ocean carriers. And so they renegotiate this periodically. It's about every five, seven years or so. Um, and what's happening now is they were set to renegotiate it in 2019. It got pushed two years at that point, um, or, or three years, I should say, at that point, um, because it wasn't the right time that there were a few kind of contentious things and they just wanted to, to, to push it off. And so not knowing that right down the pipe was going to be COVID, um, you know, here we are. And so this fall 2021, it was requested to bump it again. Um, but, you know, it had already been bumped. The, the contract had been extended. 
the world of 2019 versus the world of now, or or even prior to 2019, the, the first iteration of that contract that they had extended mm-hmm. is a different world than what it is now for, for all sorts of reasons. It's, it's the, um, you know, it's health reasons. It's, um, you know, just the financial economic things that are required in a, in a negotiation on a labor contract. Yep. So what happens is the contract as it exists is done June 30th, which means June 1st contract, there, there is no contract right now. Hmm. That doesn't mean that everything stops, that, you know, that people go home, that they can't show up to work. Um, hopefully there's going to be something that kind of allows, and, and I think that there always is, there, uh, that allows for the ILWU workers to continue um, but I mean, you you never really want to be in a space where you don't have that kind of the the rule book, the the guidebook on um, you know keeping it fair. And yeah. so they started negotiations mid May um, for a June thirtieth um, you know conclusion of their current contract. To me, that seems pretty late. Um, you know, historically, it's it's not it's it's certainly not early. They've started earlier than that. Um, right. It's about right. I think that they've previously you know started kind of negotiating. Uh, in the springtime sometimes. Um, but so what, what's happening is they're, they're sitting down to negotiate. And so the week before Memorial Day, there was uh, maybe even 10 days before Memorial Day, there were a couple kind of inkling Twitter messages. We're starting to hear that there might be a pause to negotiations. I mean, mind you, we're, they're, they're only negotiating, what, six weeks before the contract is set to expire. And here they are 10 days before Memorial Day saying, we're going to pause negotiations until June 1st. And so that's what happened. So they paused negotiations until June 1st. So, you know, it's it's already, everybody's hoping for a really easy, really quick, um, really simple negotiation. But I, I don't think anybody expects that to be the reality. I was going to say, how real is that? How right, is right, yeah. exactly. But, you know, I think everybody wants to approach it because you have to, like with, with rose-colored glasses, you know, all right, let's let's get this done. Let's find this, uh, you know, let's find this negotiation point here. So um, that's what's going on. So they are working toward it. So what does that mean? If we don't have a contract in place by July 1st, yep. what does that mean? Um, we've been told generally that they that the ILWU doesn't plan to strike. That doesn't mean that they won't. That doesn't mean that they can't. Um, you know, it, de- it kind of all depends on the conversation. Um, there was a little bit of a little bit of ruffling of feathers happening right before they sat down for their mid-May discussion because there was a report released about automation and its beneficial effects during Mm. COVID. Um, So that wasn't great because apparently it wasn't released to the ILWU before it was released to the public. And so, I mean, it's like, if you want to start things off on a, on a good foot, you want everybody to be very kumbaya collaborative and, and, I, I don't know that that was probably opposite what I would have expected, <laughs> you know, uh, a kumbaya totally. moment. Um, so, you know, I, will there be delays from this? Hopefully not. You know, I think that the entire country is, is um, suffering because of the congestion and suffering because of the multitude of reasons. There's no one smoking gun, but the multitude of reasons on why we're seeing congestion and, and supply chain troubles and, you know, backups and, and all of that, um, it's the change in demand. It's the change in COVID policies for, right. you know, China. It's it's a whole host of issues. Um, and so this is going to be another layer that's going to be added on. Um, it's starting to kind of line up with uh, China starting to come down off their zero COVID policy. Um, I've heard mixed reports on whether zero COVID 
um, you know, kind of release of zero COVID is going to have a surgence of, of imports come in um, right now. I, I don't know. I've seen mixed reports saying, you know, we just don't think it's going to be this big boom of imports. But then I've also heard other people saying you thought 150 ships offshore was was big. Just wait for what's coming. Um, I, I think it's somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. There's there's a lot of noise recently over the past couple of days about imports falling off a cliff, but I, I think it's still too early to tell what impacts the lifts on restrictions in, in China will have. But it it is odd that we are starting to see this big fall off a cliff of coming in bookings of imports coming into the U.S. Right. You know, and I, I think it's kind of it's it's probably related to a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, it's it's you know, ocean carriers' relationships with their shippers and, and some of those contracts, you know, um, the service contracts, the pushing the shippers to the spot market so it's more expensive. So just to kind of identify, so a shipper can enter into a private contract with an ocean carrier, um, you know, file that with the FMC. It's still filed confidentially so that the FMC monitors to make sure that there's no monopolistic or kind of antitrust behavior happening. Um, but that's where sometimes, um, and it's usually it's, it's kind of a promise for a minimum quantity of goods shipped for a certain rate and a certain quality of service from the ocean carrier. And so that's usually what those service contracts are um, covering, but it doesn't cover everything. And so sometimes spot market, which is the kind of price of the day, which we saw really exponentially increase over the past year, two, three, um, sometimes those shippers aren't getting their contracted rates, they're getting pushed over to spot market. And so that's where we're having these really incredible, um, you know, freight charges, ocean freight charges um, come about. And so, I mean, you know, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's also Target just came out the other day saying they have too much stuff, which I don't know about you, but my Target doesn't have full shelves, but you know, Mine either. Do, right. But, <laughs> but they do kind of have some, some rejuggling of, of what they do have in stock to do. And I think that's what they were kind of getting at. And I mean, what a great marketing ploy. Now everybody's looking at Target's website, seeing what's on sale. You know, I mean, that's true. So, um, so maybe that was also part of it was, you know, come out and, and pretend like you're hobbling, but really you're, this is like a roundabout market. And I have no idea what, what Target's trying to do here, but you know, we're, we're starting to get ready. People weren't able to get their goods for Christmas. Right. And usually that's the end of summer that they're getting their Christmas goods. I think they're starting to kind of realign and maybe trying to be, pull in their Christmas goods now. Um, you know, so maybe that's the drop off is they don't want to flood their, their store shelves with just random stuff or their warehouse with just random stuff. They want to keep it really targeted and they want to make sure that they're bringing in the right stuff. So maybe while everybody's waiting to see what happens with the West Coast contract negotiation, maybe they're taking a pause. Do you Do think you that the West Port negotiations are causing more shippers to divert freight over to the East Coast? causing, you know, the record imports that we're seeing in the Gulf and all up and down the East Coast? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's the only reason, but I would certainly say it's a contributing factor. Um, we did see some people start to shift their diversifying of their ports of entry, um, even as much as six months to a year ago, um, because people saw this coming, especially when there was the request to delay in the fall and, and it got denied. It was kind of setting the stage. Well, okay, so, so you know, we, we're moving forward. And so this is, you know, an otherwise very, kind of high stakes time and you're hearing about the record profits and, you know, now we're going to have a labor negotiation that just kind of has contentious written all over it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, you know, I think, I think that that's, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see, but there's a lot of different reasons um, that people are going to be diversifying their ports of entry. And I think one of them is control um, where, you know, previously it might've been cheaper 
to go into LA Long Beach because of economies of scale, just larger vessels, um, you know, cheaper per box rates. Right. Um, but now, I mean, if you have to wait weeks, months, you know, multiple months to get your goods, is it even worth, you know, one, is it even worth saving that money? And two, are you actually saving any money because freight rates so expensive now and it took you six months to get it. Now you have to store your summer patio equipment that was supposed to be here in the winter and now it doesn't get here till August. Like you're not going to sell much of that. Yeah. Um, I think people are going to be willing to, if I'm going to pay the same amount, I might as well go on a smaller ship and have a 30 minute turn time in Port of Boston or, you know, whatever it is, I, I might as well have a little bit more control knowing for sure that my goods are coming in because air freight is still so much exponentially more expensive than ocean cargo freight. By far. Absolutely. I, I want to shift gears just for a second to um, revocations for carriers because it's something that we've seen on our end. So Maze, why don't we start with you? I'd love to know what is the number that we're seeing for revocations on the uh, the inland freight side for carriers? Yeah. I mean, just last month, we, uh, we hit a new record beyond a record it eclipsed a previous record set just in April and doubled what we saw. Um, the, the one odd thing to call out is net authorities are still pretty positive. So it's mm -hmm. showing a lot of carriers still coming into the market, but then a lot of carriers leaving the market, um, which is kind of confusing signs, but you know, the truckload side of transportation, we're definitely seeing a big drop in rates. Um, you know, smaller carriers are struggling to get, have the revenue to cover their cost as costs skyrocketed the last two years. So mixed messages, but I think it is clear that a lot of smaller and mid-sized carriers are definitely struggling to stay afloat after the market, especially spot market, kind of fell off a cliff compared to the contract market, which is, is holding very strong right now, which is in favor of larger carriers. So for you, Lauren, I was reading that and and uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this stat, but 87% of port drivers are owner operators, small carriers. Is that around the same? Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. As I, yeah, as I understand it. Okay. So I'm wondering, are you seeing revocations on your side or is it different? So, um, you know, I'm I'm not exactly sure. So this is kind of the surface side of things that I, you know, Justin, I saw you kind of shaking your head here. This might be something that you might know a little bit better. <laughs> a lot of drage drivers are going back to larger fleets. Um, mm. I know that was reported down in in the Savannah area. Um, they're, they're just turning back into larger fleets, which I think is happening just general in the industry. Uh, you know, as spot rates continue to decline, it's, it's drivers don't naturally just leave the industry. A lot of them just go back to national fleets to where, you know, they don't have their cost to cover and the cost to operate a truck is much cheaper um, for a big, large national carrier. So like it's that that trans transfer of drivers back from smaller carriers to larger carriers, but also carriers could be leaving the industry as, as, as well. Yeah, it's interesting because it, what it means to me is that there, we we talk a lot about volatility in the trucking sector, but I feel like it's almost one and the same wherever you are in the supply chain, whether it's ocean, probably air as well. I'm sure they've got their own set of problems that we may explore someday, but for certain inland freight. And just recently, the White House appointed General Stephen R. Lyons, former commander of the U.S. Transportation Command as new port envoy. So, Lauren, what does that mean to the industry? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Or, or do we not know yet? You know, I think well, we, we don't really know yet, but I do like his credentials. You know, I like that he's coming from DOD. I like that he's coming from 
kind of a transportation, U.S. Transportation Command, so Transcom, he's coming from a logistics mind. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just think that the logistics generally favors order and and kind of, you know, predictability. And and when, you know, when you think of the military, that's what you think of. And so, you know, what a, what a perfect natural fit. Um, you know, I've actually seen this administration put, tap into quite a few retired or, um, you know, kind of transitioning military members. Um, and they've been successful. And I think that that was a, a smart move to, to bring some military expertise over. Um, so the port envoy position generally is a liaison from the administration. So, um, you know, Congress, for the most part, so most political appointees are Senate, um, so presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed. Um, you know, this is this is a, um, a, a administration person. So this is somebody that the um, that the Biden-Harris administration, as part of their supply chain disruptions task force, is tasking this person to be a little bit of the kind of liaison between the industry and the administration. Right. Um, you know, it's it. I think there's definitely value in the in the position um, because it really does kind of help connect the dots and maybe lead the conversation when it felt like you know, everything was exploding all at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but don't forget, we have the Federal Maritime Commission, which is an independent regulatory authority, independent regulatory agency that is kind of tasked with this. So, you know, while the Port Envoy is a very important role to make sure that everybody's talking together, don't forget that the Federal Maritime Commission has always been a little bit of a forgotten agency. They're very effective. They're very important. Um, but, you know, until recently, people didn't really know um, you know, much about supply chain, as we kind of right. all know, and they certainly didn't know much about the ocean side of things. And so, you know, I think that it's it's important to have, you know, people responsible for bringing people together, but we also run the risk of too many cooks in the kitchen. And so, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're keeping kind of our our, our purview on, on who's supposed to be where. And I think that they've done a good job of making sure to kind of facilitate conversations and and the Port Envoy role has been a good one to kind of bridge together and bring together all the different interests. Um, but the Federal Maritime Commission is kind of also doing that. They're, they've created the National Shipping Advisory Committee. So that's a bunch mm -hmm. of importers and exporters coming together, identifying problems and making recommendations. They've already made two already for the um, FMC to consider. But then also in um, Commissioner Dye, one of the commissioners of the FMC, just last week released 12 recommendations from her fact-finding 29, which is all about COVID-19 and supply chain disruption. Um, and so she recommended as one of those, why don't we have a shipping advisory committee that has ports and terminals and, and ocean carriers as part of it? I mean, yes, of course we should. Like, you know, we can't just have the shippers as the only ones identifying the problems. We need to yeah. bring in the ports and, you know, the, the key piece that gets the stuff from the boat to our shores, you know? So exactly. why wouldn't they be, you know, kind of their own shipping advisory committee or, or advisory committee in that? And, you know, the, the 12 different recommendations that she has are, are really, really important and really, really um, interesting. And just today, just about an hour or two ago, so here we are, June 8th, um, just about an hour ago, and I think that this will run later, um, that the chairman of the Federal Maritime Commission, Dan Maffei, has already said we're implementing three of them. So we have uh, reestablished the Export Rapid Response Team, which is essentially a way for um, a branch of the FMC to be working quickly with ocean carriers and C-suite levels, um, establish a new and permanent international ocean shipping supply chain program, which I believe to probably be 
um, either a task force within FMC or maybe even an entirely new office, sure. which, you know, FMC generally is supply chain. But I think that the nuance here is that it's going to have a little bit more of the surface transport side and the full connectivity picture, um, right. where previously it was kind of trade and analysis, enforcement office, obviously you have your general counsel's office, and then there's a consumer affairs and dispute resolution at the FMC. Mm -hmm. Now, hopefully there's going to be something that's more international ocean shipping supply chain focused. And the third one is, and this is, I think is the most interesting, take steps necessary for carriers, marine terminal operators, and operating seaports to employ a designated FMC compliance officer. So that's saying that all terminals and ports now will have to have a designated person that is the FMC compliance officer. And I think, I mean, talk about actionable first steps. For sure. I mean, that's that's it. Now you have a liaison at all seaports and terminals. Wow, that's a great way to set an example for, I think, all of the supply chain. Because, you know, we've seen, and this is uh, not to get political, but just to touch it on the surface, we've seen things like the, the uh, apprenticeship program and the trucking action plan and so forth. But this, to me, feels like a true meaningful three steps towards progress in, uh, in the ocean freight sector that I think inland freight could also see. But that's my hot take for the day. I don't want to <laughs> get into that part. What I do want to leave us on is here on the podcast, we love to ask sort of a crystal ball question. And so for you, Lauren, if you could predict what the rest of the year will look like for Ocean Freight, what would that look like? You know, so detention and demerge, we talked about it at the start, you know, this is going to kind of bookend the conversation. I think that there's still, so there's a advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. There's a rulemaking that's out there right now. It closed down the first step. I think we're going to see the second step come around. Hmm. I think there's a lot of people who both surface, ocean, everybody that's connected to the supply chain understands that demurrage is a huge cost and a huge issue. And it's been kind of allowed to run like wildfire. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see the FMC taking a little bit more control over it um, and cleaning it up. And I think that they're only going to clean it up administratively. And I think we're going to see some big results from them cleaning up billing practices. Currently, there are no requirements for how long a, you know, how long past the demerge incident is for billing. You could get a, a bill a year later that says 3000 bucks for demerge. And they're oh, not required yeah. to say what containers. They're not required to say what time period. They're not required to do anything. So the FMC is saying, well, we don't want to we don't want to get too far into the business. We still want the business and the supply chain to be able to run itself. But we got to put some guardrails on this. We got to yeah. put some, some parameters. And so here's what we're thinking. And they're, they're basically saying, we want to put some time frames to, you need to at least identify container numbers. You need to at least identify time periods. They're saying at that first um, rulemaking stage, do you think that we should have a 30-day time period, 60-day, 90-day, one year? Like what, what industry rules do you think would be most effective? And the FMC was asking for the industry's input. So I think I'm hopeful that what they come out with for detention and demerge mm -hmm. is going to be helpful and is going to be, um, you know, cleaning up from a minimal standpoint, but will have a big impact. Um, you know, I, I also think that we're going to see some changes. Um, so the Ocean Shipping Reform Act is something that was going through Congress. It's passed both the House and the Senate, two different versions. It's in conference now, which after bills passed either the House and the Senate, they get kind of like, I guess, melded together into the final product that then goes to the um to the president's office sure. that's the stage that they're in now i think we're going to see that that comboed version come out and 
you know, there was talk about maybe before Memorial Day. I think probably not till the end of summer at this point. You know, once you get into summer, there's a lot of big issues happening in general. I think the economy has obviously taken the front seat. Um, But I I think that we're going to see some more regulatory cleaning up, um, you know, allowing maybe the FMC a little bit more um, regulatory arms. They're a pretty responsible agency as it as it comes about regulating the industry. They really don't want to get into people's business too much. Yeah. But where they see problems, I mean, that's their role. That's why they're there. Wow, that's uh, well. Let's hope, right? Let's hope that's what the the next couple of uh, months look like as we close out the year. Lauren, such a pleasure having you on the show. I think uh, for us internally, this is probably the third time, but for our Transfix audience, I swear I'm going to say this as soon as we get off so that I don't lose it again. But truly a pleasure. We'll obviously be speaking to you very soon as we start getting around that July 1st, uh, that July 1st date. But why don't you let everyone know where they can follow you and, and how they can stay in touch? Sure. Well, thank you again for having me on. This was always always fun to chat with you guys and so fun to talk about these these hot topics today. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I run a weekly show on Fridays at 1 p.m. It's called By Land and By Sea. Um, it streams out to LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, By Land and By Sea is the YouTube page. I encourage you to watch it. I hit, in about 30 minutes, just random topics in ocean shipping. We do a top three stories of the week just to kind of cover my take on it. Usually there's a lot of nuances for my career in the industry, um, but a really great quick hit. Um, I'm also the Maritime Professor. Um, So I've created the Maritime Professor. It's a non-legal maritime ocean business coaching, uh, e-learning, kind of just general questions, um, you know, that that people have. Feel free to reach out to me through the maritimeprofessor.com, you know, reach out via email. But if you do have a legal question, I am a lawyer. I am a maritime attorney. I do have a law firm. It's called Squall Strategies, and I'd be happy to help um, you know, any try to help answer some questions that you might have about Federal Maritime Commission, ocean shipping generally, regulatory, um, you know, transactional, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I've, I'm around. Please reach out. I'd love to. I have obviously a clear passion for the industry, and I would love to just help, um, you know, re, rejoin this national conversation in, in multifaceted ways. So, um, you know, I've, I've been chatting with a lot of surface transport people recently and really enjoy the conversation. I'm, I'm trying to break down those silos so that if we can all understand each other with the same terminology, you know, the same kind of baseline understanding, we'll have an appreciation for the other side of, of what happens when you when you transfer that box, whether it goes out to the ship or off of the ship. Um, you know, that, that's what we all want to get to. We want to get to uh, kind of a, a where everybody everybody kind of understands what's happening and it becomes a uniform supply chain. Oh, yeah. I that's agree more. Definitely. Well, y'all drive safely and we will see you next week with an all new episode of the Transfix Take podcast. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Transfix Inc. or any parent companies or affiliates or the companies with which the participants are affiliated and may have been previously disseminated by them. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are based upon information considered reliable, but neither Transfix Inc. nor its affiliates nor the companies with which the participants are affiliated warrant its completeness or accuracy and it should not be relied upon as such. All views and opinions are subject to change.